Welcome to The New Disruptors, a show designed to help you hold several incompatible ideas in your mind at one time. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This podcast is the second half of a long discussion I had recently with Craig Maud, a writer, designer, and publisher who spends most of his time in Palo Alto, Tokyo, and New York. In part one, which you can find as episode number 17 at muleradio.net slash newdisruptors slash 17, Craig and I talk mostly about design and crowdfunding. In this part, we examine his now famous essay about subcompact publishing. I'm going to zoom forward to something that that also I think is going to have the same big effect. It, it had a huge response the minute you published it. It's this subcompact publishing essay that you produced in uh, November 2012. And, uh, you know, the Kickstarter campaign, the, the, that essay, uh, that had a lot to do with looking at some level backward. You were looking at how do we do books or how do we do this kind of book? It was a print result. And then the interim, you've produced a digital edition that there, you have another great essay about that that will, we're going to talk about a different podcast, I think. Uh, in a few months, we'll come back and redress that. But there was, you know, there was some looking back of that it was the end of one stage of your career, uh, uh, end result of that end of time in publishing and print publishing, not the end of what you'll be doing in publishing. And even as you're overlapping into working, you know, more and more in this digital only world and, and dealing with the devices and iPads and multiple targeting and how you redo that. So subcompact publishing comes out. And I feel like that was both reactive and inspirational to a lot of people too. This essay you wrote was based in part on Marco's, the magazine, which, you know, again, disclosure, I'm the editor of the thing, but I wasn't involved in any of the planning or design phases for it. I came on about a month or so, uh, about two or three issues into it. And I had the same reaction. So I can talk about it independently that I was like, Oh, mm. This is it. This is the thing <laughs> that isn't it. So did you obviously have been, had been percolating on these ideas for a while and the, mm -hmm. the, the magazine seemed to trigger this essay to come out because it, it represented something you'd been thinking about? Absolutely. Well, I, you know, like a lot of these essays, they're, they're kind of born from a certain frustration. You know, it's uh, the books in the age of the iPad was, that was totally a, just a frustrated essay. You know, I was, I Worked in indie publishing. It was so hard to make money. I saw everyone around me not making much money. You know, everything was, it was a quote unquote labor of love, but you know, labor of loves are great, but they aren't so great if you can't feed your kids. And so the subcompact publishing as well was, you know, by this point, it had been two and a half years since the iPad was released and in people's hands. And yeah, two and a half years of kind of, subpar reading experiences, subpar publishing experiences on tablets, just kind of low-hanging fruit publishing. Everyone seemed to say when the iPad came out, even before it came out, they're like, this mm. is the future of publishing. This is going to transform books and reading, even before anyone had touched one, and magazines. But it seemed like the hardware hit, and then everyone mm. looked at it and said, don't just sit there, do something. Right, right, right. And and, and, and I, I guess I, I need to, uh, to preface all this by saying that I don't think anything, any of those experiments or any of the work that came out was in itself inherently bad. I right. think it was all, it was all necessary. This is what happens when, you know, someone, you've been doing one thing for a hundred years in way X, and then someone gives you this new thing that kind of looks in some ways like the old thing, but isn't exactly like it. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, okay, we've been doing things in, in this way X up until now. How do we take X and put it in this new device? Now, I think that's just what's going to happen. That's fine. You know, and, 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 and when any new medium emerges, this is kind of the, I think, part and parcel of the process of exploring that medium. But at the same time, you know, it's it's good to kind of take a step back uh, and 
distance yourself from the incumbent processes and, and what, what the incumbents were bringing to the table and say, okay, well, what if, what if we had none of that? What if we didn't have any of, the, any, of, any of that on the table that ties us to print methodologies, the print schedules, the, the, the cost of distribution of print, things like that? And what if you start from zero? And, and the reality is, is that there's a chicken and egg problem here with any new device, with any new platform. And I think that you know, the first year of the iPad, sure, people had them, but, you know, it, it was going to be very hard to do a sustainable small press or small small publishing enterprise on it. And I think that when the magazine came out, you know, summer of last year, fall of last year, you know, we were entering this, we're starting to enter this inflection point where the iPad and, and similar devices, you know, Nexus 7, uh, Kindle HD, you know, the original Kindle Fire was not, mm -hmm. it was just not a pleasurable thing to touch or hold or use or, or, <laughs> or engage at all. It just, it just wasn't nice. You know, it's, I'm glad it existed. I'm glad Amazon put that out there, sort of, you know, add a little bit of competition to the market. But, you know, the Kindle HD, I think, you know, was a superior, vastly superior product. And so, and also with the iPad mini, I think we finally reached this point with the devices that they were converging hardware-wise into a very comfortable space. Uh, I, I found the original iPad uncomfortable for reading. Um, I, it was too always too big. Even even mm -hmm. iPad two, iPad three, too heavy, too too large. Couldn't really hold it with one hand. It always felt like it was going to fall on your head and break your nose when you're reading <laughs> reading it in bed. Uh, I was you know just petrified of, of of sort of damaging myself with the iPad and. Yeah, the iPad Mini kind of felt like this is this is a great size. You know, I, I love that Steve. You know, if you if you talk to the Apple folks, Steve was against mini sized iPads, and and to me, it's the first iPad that feels really usable. So anyway, bringing it back to the magazine, it's like at the mm -hmm. end of last year, it just felt like okay, the devices are finally where they need to be. You know, we had two and a half years of kind of iterating on the bigger version of these devices, but really the intimate comfortable reading experience was going to come out of these sort of smaller seven inch tablets. And I think the magazine too, when it, when it launched, it was this distillation, you know, to get back to the, you know, the simplest five tiers you could possibly have to run a Kickstarter campaign. The magazine kind of represented what are the simplest four or five attributes of a digital indigenous publication, you know, a digital publication that's just born on the tablet using, you know, focused only on iOS in this case, but using what are the, what are the tools that are available to make everything as seamless and feel as indigenous as possible. That was really exciting because up until that point, there was nothing to point at mm -hmm. that represented that represented those ideals. Because everything, there were a lot of, um, I mean, that was the early stage was Adobe producing tools that let magazines already with InDesign production workflows right. to convert those essentially to, you know, 700 megabyte right. download files right. that had a poor navigation experience. You have this wonderful thing in this essay where you say, if you have to teach someone how to use navigation, then you've lost already. You know, we show all these different instruction guides, you know, you open the New Yorker and there's this cute essay of Lena Dunham, Lena Dunham uh, telling me how to use right. the app. And I'm like, right. really? And I, I'm always wrestling with the New Yorker app, and I'm compelled. I want to read the content, and sometimes it's got fluid scrolling, and sometimes it's page-based, and right, it's right. indecipherable to me. But you listed a bunch of qualities of what you thought subcompact publishing could look like, and the thing that I think was hilarious is before Marco did that, and now you have many, many 
and I'm going to say they're not, you know, this is funny. There's this issue about whether people are ripping them off or there's simultaneous mm-hmm. development of the same ideas. And there's certainly, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of the, we're taking a look and feel. And a lot of it is you wrote this essay, people are doing stuff that you described in this essay. And maybe some are borrowing a little bit from him, but they're developing new code and new platforms. In any case, the, the thing was that most of the stuff you listed was not impossible to do. You, right. A programmer could do these things. The newsstand was a big enabling factor, but having uh, fluid scrolling without having pagination or using small file sizes or not having complicated navigation, all of that could be done from the minute that Apple allowed you to create apps practically as third-party developers. But it seemed that you had to have someone willing to take a rider. And Marco, with millions of people using Instapaper, could go out there. He could be a programmer himself, so he invested however many hundreds of thousands of dollars of personal mm. time. If he was billing it out as a contractor, mm. it's probably on some huge order of magnitude, um, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but still quite a lot of personal time devoted towards this that he didn't have to justify or build to someone else. He had an audience that likes what he did, so he only needed a fraction of them to come. And so there's that component, but, but I think... He was willing to put himself out there and put the time in without knowing whether there'd actually be money. And that seems like one of the hard parts was someone willing to say, we're going to try these ideas and it's possible we're going to lose our shirt on it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, Marco's in a unique unique position of having a having a pretty good safety net as well. Obviously, you know, Instapaper was... You know, I'm 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 assuming Instapaper is still doing great. And, yeah, he didn't and, have to quit his day job to write the magazine. To... It's the big. I mean, that's part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, but but the um, you know, the the bit about people copying or or cloning or whatever. When I when I look at the magazine and 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 really the magazine to me felt in this much in the same way as sort of like it's it's almost like a minutian uh, uh, sort of piece of output. You know, minutia sort of coming up with the format that became you know the paperback format. The, you know the the the, the, the sizing right. and, and kind of the, the ethos behind behind the, how the book should you know look and feel and when I look at the magazine to me the magazine isn't all it's saying is in it's in the same way that a book is we're saying a book should be about 200 pages you know they're made out of paper it's you know four by five or whatever and it's got some like pieces of cardboard sitting on the top and the bottom right. to protect it like that's what the magazine is so when when um, when people talk about you know, folks cloning the magazine or copying the magazine. That's like people saying, "Oh, that publisher is copying Gutenberg." You know, or that this this publisher over here is copying Minutius. It, it to me, it's so fundamental. Marco was able to distill what the what the absolute base of a reading experience, a distribution experience for content. You know, and, and it's weird that we call it a magazine because. The lines are so blurry between what represents a book these days, what's a magazine. Yes. You could take Marco's platform and you could, why couldn't you publish a serialized novel through it? You know, I mean, there's no reason you couldn't. You right. subs- and the Atavis the platform is they're publishing something that is really long feature articles, but they're calling themselves a magazine and, you, and it's arguable they are a magazine, but are they books? Are they short books? Right. Are they magazine? Right. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter except that I think they're trying to tickle that part of the brain. Like I, you know, as a book designer, you know, there's like this booky kind of thing. There are these qualities you associate when you pick up a print book. Yep. Uh, and if it doesn't look like that, it doesn't feel like a book. It feels like a mess. Right. So you have to hit those high points. And I think people are trying to still, um, you talk about the skeuomorphism of public Publishing, where it's not the appearance, it's more all the trappings and paraphernalia of 
publishing that have nothing to do with the actual appearance or what's necessary for the digital realm. And I think some of that is people trying to tickle the same feeling that something is a magazine and and tap into the fact that hundreds of millions of copies of magazines are sold a month around the world. So there's there's a a market for that and you want to do something new maybe, but you also want to hit that same button. Right, right. Yeah, I mean the skew skeuomorphism of of sort of publishing business practices is it's really hard to disconnect from. I mean, and I think you know it took so it took two and a half years for the magazine to come out, and there I'm sure there had been other uh, similar publications that just didn't pop up on the radar. But two and a half years for someone to sort of say, you know, let's take a step back, and and it's it's telling that it was a programmer because you know as I say in subcompact publishing, um, a lot of a lot of the the tools newsstand for example newsstand was announced at a developer conference right mm-hmm. you know this this is weird you know this is a this is a a tool made specifically for publishing but it wasn't announced at you know the book expo america it wasn't announced at any magazine conference it was it was announced in san francisco at the wwdc um and so that means that the only people that really understood how to leverage that were developers were programmers and the disconnection, the great disconnection, and I think the last five years has been this sort of, there's been this bridge building slowly at first and now a little more quickly between New York and Silicon Valley. And um, that's one of the great joys of bouncing back and forth between these, these, these cities is that, you know, Silicon Valley has over the last five years slowly been coming to understand what it means to produce content, what it means to be a creator, what it means to, to kind of understand uh, uh, sort of high quality publishing ethos, and then at the same time, the publishing world in New York City has been coming to grips with the fact that they need to talk to geeks. They need to sit down with geeks, and you know these guys who build the platforms, build the technology, sort of help with the, these new distribution systems. They need to have conversations with them, and so the magazine is sort of this in a lot of ways, this ideal. It's this, you know, Marco is this programmer. He has this insight into what tools are available. And uh, he also had insight into into content and, and, and the types of content that people were consuming. I mean, you know, running Instapaper. And I think that was, you know, that was one of these kind of magical confluences that that enabled him to uh, to kind of say, well, you know, this this putting something together like the magazine is not too crazy. It is a risk, but it was probably less of a risk in his eyes than it would have been to, say, for example, Condé Nast. Let's take a break to talk about one of our sponsors. You know, PDF is a great format, but if you want to do anything other than view a PDF file's contents, you have to spend a small fortune and master complicated software. Or you can turn to PDF Pen from Smile, a program that I've used for years. PDF Pen lets you make corrections, extract information, and erase parts of a file. You can perform optical character recognition to turn images embedded in the PDF into plain text. It's just 60 bucks. If you purchase it via the Mac App Store, you can store your documents in iCloud. You can also use PDF Pen to sign documents, either by using a scanned signature or scribbling one with a mouse or touchpad. I've used it to annotate articles, delete unwanted pages, and optimize the file size of bloated PDFs created by other applications. But wait, if you need even more features, you can turn to PDF Pen Pro, which lets you add form fields that other people can fill out, convert websites into PDFs with working hyperlinks, and control document permissions for printing, editing, saving, and more. PDF Pen is just $100. 
Both versions are a cinch to start using, and Smile has tutorials to help you take the greatest advantage. Go to smilesoftware.com and click on PDF Pen for more information and a free trial of the regular or pro versions. Now back to the show. That's right, because they they have a brand to dilute. They have right. still have printing presses to pay for, and right. and so forth. And I think what was great contrast is you wrote. So this essay uh, came out. There was an enormous amount of discussion about it, and in fact, it was. I, I think the timing was such that I may have just joined the magazine at that point. So I'm like, you're actually informing me about what I'm doing, which was great. It's like, oh, I know what I'm going to do now because. <laughs> right. it's, but it's this newsroom free situation. All freelancers originally, you know, Marco was going to edit it before. I, and that's the one place he was naive. I will talk to him about mm-hmm. it when I have him on the podcast. Is sure. the amount of time he knew we would have to bring someone in sure. but the amount of time to make it happen and you know in the end where we're at now he's talked about this with um with NPR's planet money uh so I can talk about the numbers since he's talked about them publicly but you know we spend like ten thousand dollars an issue between sure. staff time and writing time and you know artists and that doesn't include uh, you know honestly it doesn't really include any of his time his time is comes out of the overhead since he's you know, the profit because he's the publisher so that's what he gets to keep but uh but seriously I mean this is you know I feel like we're doing something very good but it takes a lot of money in time to do that and that's the but that's the only overhead we have is like me and everyone else is freelance we're all in this loosely connected web and uh, the tr- the contrast to that when the magazine came out was Rupert Murdoch's The Daily which mm. was supposed to be a born digital newsroom mm. they had started from scratch using the iPad as their only platform you had to read the iPad it has a subscription model and they'd reached 100,000 subscribers so when you wrote subcompact you're like we have these two different disruptive models and you didn't talk about the daily as much in this context mm-hmm. because it was it had other limitations uh, and then a few weeks later, what happens? The Daily Folds. Rupert shuts right. down the experiment. He spent, you know, I don't know, $50 million or something like that over uh, and and finished with 100,000 people subscribing. Uh, did you feel, I don't know, it wasn't justified, but that must have been a weird moment when having written this essay and getting all this feedback. And it's like, ah, well, the proof of concept that some, something that shouldn't work according to your formulation of the new advantages of digital publishing, something that shouldn't work didn't work or it didn't achieve the revenue goals or the cost structure. I, I get, you know, I mean, I looked at the daily and, and it, to me, it, in a lot of ways, it wasn't a failure. I mean, it was, it was right. Uh, right. I think it, people mistake it, that. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. I mean, especially when you consider how hard it was to use, right? it was, <laughs> it was, it was so, especially in the beginning, it was, no, so, I know we're being, it's totally true. Is that it they was, made so many impairments, so many ways for people to not be able to get the content right. and not to be able to share the content. And yet they had a hundred thousand people subscribing. Unbelievable. I mean, I remember, I remember looking at the early versions of the daily and, and there'd be articles where, you know, it would it would be a movie review, and you could only watch the trailer of the movie if you rotated the iPad. You know, it, it was things like that where you're just like, there's probably six readers who are going to find this that are going to figure this out, or there'll be a thousand readers who only see the the trailer but don't get the article because they don't know they have to rotate to, to get the article. Fundamentally, for me, their problem was they had too much money. It was funded too right. expensively. Is I think if Murdoch had said, you have a million dollars and four months or five months to get this thing off the ground and your weekly budget is $737 or $7,000 for your entire newsroom thing, go! They would have done something incredible. Instead, the reported total, I think they spent $30 million starting up. And I'm like, what did they spend $30 million on? They built the CMS from people I know who worked there was horrible. Um, It's a content management system. So it wasn't actually easy to do the things like update and publish and so forth and and make corrections and track changes and work with lots of writers. The the app was fine, but nothing spectacular. And I'm like, what did they spend $30 million on? If they'd had a million dollars to start with, I think it would have been far better. 
Well, and and when when they launched, you know, I I loved it. I I, I just kept saying, you know, whenever I gave talks and I I'd, I'd, I'd point at the daily, I'd say, guys. Like, don't disparage this thing. Rupert is giving us a a thirty million dollar public R and D project. Like, just yeah. just watch them. Watch what's happening. This is amazing. Like, no, who else is going to dump thirty million dollars into into a publication without without really kind of understanding the medium? You know, I mean, the iPad had, had been out for about a year, I guess, at that point when it when it when it launched, and or nine months or something like that. And it's like this is phenomenal. Yes, let let Rupert do this. Who cares if it if it if it feels wrong? I mean, from the beginning, it just felt like it isn't going to work. So when the, when you know when they folded, eventually, it was just kind of it was actually uh, there was this kind of feeling of oh, the daily was still around. I mean, yeah, it if just, you didn't it, subscribe, you didn't know. But a hundred thousand people exist. were subscribing. Right. That was it. Cut itself off. And you know, we got this criticism at the magazine. I think this ties in directly to some of your subcompact publishing points. Is that when it launched, Marco launched. We've we've been going through a staged evolution because Marco put in features that were low hanging fruit that met hit all the high points he wanted to at launch. And so we've gradually been adding things, but we had this criticism for months that you're not part of the discussion because you have to have the app to read full articles. Mm. If you can't read full articles, you can't subscribe in the web. We can't link to it. And even though we only ask for 30 days rights from uh, writers, so they're republishing stuff a lot of the time on their blog, 30 days after publication, then they become the part of the, of the discussion. So, you know, months into it, Marco had the time and had done continuous development. And now we have web subscriptions. And now we are part of the conversation with a porous paywall and so mm. forth, but that was always a plan. It wasn't. No, this is an iOS app. You have to have iOS six. Mm. You'll never. People perceived it as a monolithic thing. But for the daily, it seemed like that was always the plan, and they stuck to it. That they never wanted to have a conversation outside the confines of their app. Essentially, well, and and I think that came from from bringing all of the expectations an incumbent brings to the table. You know, where you have to own all of the experience, you know, and, 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 and our content is sacred. And the only way to get to it is to pay us money. And that's the only way you're going to see what we're putting out there. You know, and in the magazine, uh, that was my, that was really my only criticism of the magazine when it launched was, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it feels weird for me as someone with uh, social media followers or whatever to link to something that is a truncated article. Oh, it yeah. Just, it, it just yeah. felt, you know, it just feels weird. And and, it really drove us crazy, too. It's just that's that. It's a funny thing is like Rupert Murdoch had all the money in the world and they made the choice to not do that. <laughs> Marco had like uh, a finite amount of time produce something people really seem to react to. But with, within that finite time, eventually was able to, you know, then produce that thing that people said was was missing. Now, you know, the publication I would point to if you want to look at a hybrid that's taking, I think, a lot of lessons from what you're doing, a lot of lessons from the daily and has a lot of things in common and predates the magazine is Quartz from The Atlantic, mm. where it's responsive design, it works on all these different platforms, it's not firewall, paywalled away, and it's a digital-born newsroom. It's not connected mm. to The Atlantic newsroom, it's a fresh thing. Now, I don't know anything about the finances behind it, and, I, and I'll disclose a friend of mine from college is the editor-in-chief of it, a wonderful fella, and, but I think it's a great experiment, too, because it doesn't break the notion of community, mm. and you don't have to have a specific device, and they've got, you know, they've got staff, they're producing Atlantic-level, New Yorker-level level, you know, New York Times level content mm. in this environment that meets a lot of the parameters, I think, of what you defined in your essay. Mm. Well, I, I, be, before, before we dig into that, I just want to circle back to The Daily for a second. Mm. You know, I, I, I think sometimes we forget The Daily was publishing articles on the web uh, when it launched. I don't know if, I, I don't know if you remember Andy Bio yeah. did, this, did this thing, that the, I forget what he called it, the, the Daily Uncovered or something, where he, he built a Tumblr that would scrape 
the daily or he, he did it manually. I forget what, but every single day it would, it would reveal all of the links. So the daily didn't have like, a, it didn't have a web homepage where you could go to and see here are the, all, here are all the articles for today, but you could in the daily app, you could say, I want to share this article and it would give you a URL to send to Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And it went through a couple of iterations, but in the beginning it was, I think it was full article text they yeah, were just you couldn't find you had a fight to find it or you had to get referrals people had to forward links to you well, well, and then well, you could read it you could just do i mean the the trick was i mean this is it was really silly you just do a twitter search for the daily.com yes. slash and it, it was like a unique url head that was you know article or whatever and you could see them all you could just find them all and so andy andy just sort of uh, automated that and i remember he got a cease and desist or, or something oh, yeah. soon it, after it, andy andy is one of the most wonderful people on the internet and he's the guy behind well he's going to be on a future podcast before oh, the awesome. next XOXO conference oh, and, nice. and Andy McMillan, his co-collaborator uh, in XOXO conference, which I talk about every podcast just about because it was so wonderful. But yeah, Andy, yeah. Andy is one of those guys, he doesn't push the envelope to be irritating. He pushes the envelope because like, look, this is, why don't we just do this thing? Right, right, which right, is right, obvious. Right. It's it's good for your business too and you're not doing it. Right, right, right. And, and I didn't kind of bloop. You know, I feel so bad that Andy had to, you know, I look back on that sometimes, you know, where he, he, Totally got sued, right, by Blue Note or whoever it was. Well, it was um, by the yeah the photographer, the photographer who I met years and years ago at Kodak, who's actually a really interesting guy, but had been ripped off so much in his life. I think the photographer, uh, uh, it's my, Jay Mizell. I think he uh, so reflexively sues people because mm. he he was when I met Jay Mizell twenty five years ago. What was he talking about? He was showing me examples of his work being ripped off. <laughs> so I think it's a theme there that goes beyond Andy. Fortunately, embrace it. it but, embrace it. So the Daily did have it had some openness, but it's intent was to get people they wanted people inside their paywall and they right. wanted to sort of keep people in the paywall and they i don't think they saw the value or at least the, the management and the structure didn't see the value of having a larger discussion around it you know you know we have an andy bios type situation with the magazine which we're not pushing back against right now you can only see the full-size covers in a few places there's nowhere mm. in the app to see them mm. uh, or on the website really but you can extract them from the, the newsstand of all places and right, like right. and so forth so someone's created a site and it's sort of notified hey I did this I hope you don't mind and it's full size covers of all the yeah. covers of the magazine because we're not yet doing it eventually we will because the covers are beautiful and right, we're right, using right. photography and illustration now but it's funny to me I'm like well they're filling in this gap that's great like yeah. uh, you know Mar Marco may have a separate opinion about it I'm thinking this is fun he's not getting any commercial benefit off it and it's kind of awesome that someone cares enough about it to do that labor of love and do this thing and you know when we add it to the app and the site then it's no longer necessary and he won't care because we'll have fulfilled something he wanted to and and and, and I, I mean, I do have to, to say the covers are just getting more and more beautiful. They're, they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're lovely. They're really wonderful. Well, well lest I, this be a love affair, one of the things you point out in your essay was the fact that most covers are just exactly the same as the print edition right. for, and so they're totally illegible in the newsstand. They look like, like hot mess, where now you see this not just with us, but with many publications oh, now yeah. have finally gotten the idea in the last few months of actually producing a cover designed to be read in the newsstand. Right, right, right. Well, it's, we, it's context awareness. You know, where is mm -hmm. this, you know, we're publishing this thing. Where, where are people going to see it? And, uh, you know, it just, it circles back to the incumbents having these ingrained processes and sort of not wanting to break from those processes. And also, you know, companies like Adobe sort of 
acting as a as a as an enabler to for them to just keep embracing what they've been doing instead of recontextualizing rethinking about you know how their contents can be consumed on these on these new devices it takes time to break things and you know adobe having Absolutely. lost the um dependence on flash i think adobe losing the flash war is the best thing that could ever happen and now they put out this kind of interesting reverse history like we never pushed fa- flash as a solution right. we're always open to every platform like i read the html5 w3c mailing list posts i know what you're saying everyone remembers what you said we can, it's right. all on the public web whatever if that makes you feel good good but just like the best thing that's going to happen to rss and news aggregation is google killing reader eventually that will be the best thing the same thing is true for adobe flash dying and adobe being forced to create tools that embrace and extend to all these different platforms is a terrific thing for the company and anyone mm-hmm. who uses its tools mm-hmm. absolutely well and and i think it it, it speaks to Speaks to the fact that when I when I when I talk with startups now when I when I when I meet with startups or mentor or, or advisor or whatever a lot of what I try to impose upon them is that they shouldn't be building tools for incumbents right and so you know you you kind of want to be about five years out I mean that's kind of a, a lot of what what I'm writing about uh, I realize is is like three to five years out so you know you start in the beginning saying books in the age of the iPad a lot of this stuff is kind of just coming to fruition now you know the kickstartup essay that still gets I still get comments on that essay i still get emails about that it was three it's years ago it's still true the, even though the data in there is three years old it's still it's completely relevant today right but if i if i had written kickstart up and i was like this is how as an incumbent publisher you can leverage uh crowdfunding mm. to you know to keep your business going that wouldn't have made any sense yeah, it would have been right. it would have been you know it would have been old immediately and so the same the same thing with tools the same thing with publishing tools the same thing with uh distribution and consumption tools is that you as as a tool maker today as a as a start Startup is a publishing-focused startup, and and when I say publishing-focused startup, there's the pre, you know, to use my 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 terminology, this is the pre-artifact, the artifact, and the post-artifact spaces. And so, if you're creating tools to help writers write and to help editors edit, create those tools, and and within the context of today, where the writing happens today, where the editing happens today, how it happens, and also with the context of where it's going to be pushed to. You know, I, I love looking at this idea of, of kind of reimagining the the editor, you know, and, and uh, Mandy Brown and Jason Santa Maria are doing editorially, which is, you know, this kind of startup that's rethinking Mm-hmm. Uh, editing and collaboration and, and, and just well, writing. very much looking forward to the work writing out of there as, as an editor and a writer. I'm, I'm desperate for them to create these tools and ideas. Absol- absolutely. But it's, you know, a lot of people go, Oh, but I use Google docs and you know, but <laughs> it's, it's a it's tool. Like, it's a tool. It works. <laughs> Not a means to yeah. I love, I mean, I love Google docs too. Google docs is amazing, but take a step back and just look at Google docs, right? Google docs, almost Every piece of interface, every design decision inside of that application is connected to a piece of paper. And when you realize that, you go, Jesus, you know, we, you know, cut 90% of the features and then boost and make easier this, this 10% that's sitting over here that's directly connected to, you know, 95% of what people do when they do, when they write things today digitally and when they publish digitally. And, and I think that's exciting. And so, you know, these covers, looking at these covers and, and, and sort of how people are sort of now just coming around to the fact, realizing that, oh, okay, yes, we should, we should have more context aware covers. You know, it's great to see, uh, tools and apps that today are, are not building to, 
foster whatever covers you had sitting in InDesign for your print publication of, of you know, cycling magazine that has, you know, 400 words of text on it, you know, in, in 10 point font or whatever, that becomes totally invisible when you make it a newsstand app. But, you know, an awareness and sort of tools that kind of say, hey, guys, look, this your cover when you publish to newsstand is going to look like this. You may want to consider bolder imagery or, a, you know, simpler cover or bigger type or things like that. You know, that's exciting. But those tools have to be made with an eye towards three years from now, five years from mm-hmm. now, fostering, you know, because you're supporting effectively people that don't have any power right now. When you're, when you're building a tool for publishers five years down the line, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I believe in the new, the sort of new bubbling emergent space of publishers today that right now don't really have a strong voice, but five years from now are going to be killer. And, and, and I want to give them the best tools. I want to help. I want to support them to the greatest of our, of our abilities as developers to, to allow them to seamlessly and indigenously publish, uh, you know, in a way that feels great and looks great uh, to tablets and, and sort of digital ecosystems. Let's pause for a moment to talk about a sponsor. Briefs is a Mac application built for professionals who want to create prototypes of what iOS apps will look like. More of us are working with and creating apps these days, and we're not all programmers. Briefs lets us create practical designs and test out interaction without having to build a full app. Briefs can simulate what an app's design will look like and how it will work on every iOS device at every pixel density and let you try out the prototypes directly on those devices as well using their free iOS app Briefs case. The program lets you hand off a completed design to an iOS developer who then doesn't have to rebuild media assets or guess what you want. It's an important tool in a well-designed workflow. It costs $199 and is available in the Mac App Store. You don't have to be a developer or a software expert to use briefs. It's sophisticated, but simple. Check it out at giveabrief.com. Now back to the podcast. Well, Craig, I'll, I want to have you back on the show in a few months to talk more sure. about to. Um, that topic as well. So I, I hope you'll come back in a few months. And I, but I have one la- I have a last topic, which I think we can. We started with talking about disruption. I think we could close with talking about it because I think it ties into so much of what you were just saying. What we've been talking about is you cite in your subcompact publishing essay uh, Clayton Christensen, whose name I said totally incorrectly earlier in the podcast, and we're not going to fix that. Um, <laughs> he wrote the Innovator's Dilemma, and he wrote this co-wrote this report for uh, the, uh, Neiman uh, uh, Journalism Lab which is doing fantastic work in looking at the future of what all these shapes of things will be, run by uh, Joshua Benton, another another college classmate who um, also knows the guy behind Quartz. There's sort of a, hey, is there a connection going on here that some of us all work together in college mm-hmm. on a newspaper and we're all, well, anyway, that's all mm-hmm. I was, that's a conspiracy theory I won't tell you about. But the uh, anyway, so uh, Christensen and his colleagues wrote this uh, Neiman Reports, which you can download. And if you go to the show notes, folks, go to uh, muleradio.net slash new disruptors for this episode, and I'll have notes and links to all of this stuff, as I always do. One of the things you you talk about and cite him so extensively for is his shtick, and it's true, is that people don't realize that when you plant the acorn, eventually it's going to be a big tree, right? You know, mm-hmm. they, all the other big trees are around there. You don't realize suddenly that, you know, the, it's not that the comet's going to fall. It's rather that a new element in the ecosystem is going to rise up and force out all of these giants around you, and they're all mm-hmm. going to be gone, and the mammals will rise and so forth. So one of the things that I think about as we talk about all these things is uh, that – all the publications that exist right now are going to be destroyed in some fashion, destroyed and remade, because it's not sustainable, right. and nobody knows exactly what form it will be in. You highlighted the magazine as an example, and I'm seeing, along with the magazine, are a lot of the magazine-like things that are not copycats, but things that also have the same notion of something that is digital-born and makes sense in the context, is adaptable, isn't an adaptation, and doesn't have the overhead. What Christensen always talks about is 
the fact that we talked about at the outset that um, there's some there's what existing incumbents in an industry think of as the worst part of what they do, the thing they're least interested in, the thing they probably make the least margin off, they sort of maybe even hate doing, that's where there's an opportunity for these new mm. companies. They come in, they perfect how to make money in the sort of crappiest part of that industry. And having done that, then they eat the lunch of everybody else. They mm. go up the value chain and the people at the top are like, what's happening? I feel my legs dissolving underneath mm. me because they don't look down at the ground. They're looking at their, like in the newspaper industry, 25% profit margins, 30% profit margins, not noticing initially, at least that Craigslist was sucking the life right. out of them because right. of that exact thing. It's this crappy site. It's the internet. Nobody, oh, you know? So as you talk about both the new tools and the transition and this thing, I feel like we are on the verge of Time uh, Magazine Enterprise just being spun off from Time Warner now. Mm, it's got mm. its own P&L. It's starting with half a billion dollars to a billion dollars in debt. In an age in which magazine subscriptions are declining, despite having multiple billions of dollars of revenue, you know, we'll see what's happened there. But we're we're in this age where there's this giant transition happening. So, do you have a crystal ball? Do you see something? <laughs> no, I'm not asking you for yeah, so what, what is the future, but more like having written things that I think have been quite prescient about the changes that could and should take place, and many of which haven't. Is there a direction you see things going? You know, is it the subcompact publishing approach? Is it this is what things are going to be like. Is that what you see happening? Or is there a bigger vision that you have about what you hope um, this will transition to as the more conventional incumbents have to either change or be destroyed and new incumbents or new players um, come up from the bottom? Well, I'd like to say one thing about the, the, the sort of the, the junkiness of what the, the space disruptors occupy looks mm. like. You know, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that they're doing, you know, like, for example, with the, the Honda and the cars and the subcompact cars and things like that. They weren't, they weren't doing, the 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 sort of grunt work or the junky work. Yes, it, it right. was it was it was the unsexy stuff, right? It I was mean, nobody wanted. Nobody thought. No one in America ever thought you want to buy a lightweight small car with just, a motorcycle engine. Just not sexy, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I think the magazine, unsexy, yeah. the magazine too. When I you know I've given I've given the subcompact publishing talk a couple times now, uh, and, and actually in in Japan as well. And I I republished the essay in Japanese uh, about two months ago. It got to it was really interesting. It got to number twenty on Amazon Japan. Oh, neat! Which was kind of a weird. thing. Oh, so you published this as a as a Kindle single? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, that's yeah, awesome. That's yeah, even yeah, better. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Kindle was just released in Japan four months ago. Like, oh man, I did not know is, that. This, this is a whole other episode. So I, you know, I think the magazine, the way people dismiss it, you know, the big publishers look at the magazine, they go, "Oh, Marco doesn't get it." You know, that's junky. It's not that you know Marco is doing some kind of work that magazines didn't want to do it's not that you're editing articles that oh magazines would never want to publish this stuff it's that the container was it was so prosaic and so unsexy yes it, it was just it was so obvious it was you know it's just blank paper 200 pages with a couple of you know stiff boards keeping it all all together um that i think that was the dismissal it was it's that this can't possibly be the future this is too too normal and too obvious and i think that that's that's where the the most fun disruption happens is in that space when people ask me about um sort of publishers like you know who are who are the poster children of kind of uh contemporary disruptive publishing you know obviously the magazine is is, is a really interesting and in, in example and it falls squarely into that kind of indie space you know i mean it, it, not i don't use that in, dis, in a disparaging or pejorative way i mean it just feels like it's it's a publication that's run leanly and efficiently and you guys are i mean you guys are paying 
really well. You have a great base. You know, it just feels it feels kind of like that. You know, the best of what indie could possibly be. And we're not competing directly against. We don't have a target. Like we're not Sports Illustrated, but right. but simpler. Right. We're not you know the Economist or the Atlantic or New Yorker. We have a unique content space too. At some right. level, there's no print publication exactly like what we're doing. But right. that aside, I mean, if we were, you know, that would be a different argument. It's like if someone had said, we're launching the sports magazine, and it was exactly the same thing, how would that stack up against, right. you know, Sports Illustrated? So we have a little advantage there. Too. Right, right. Hey, but, but on the other side of it, you know, uh, in, in my opinion, one of my most favorite recent publishing entities that I think we forget is a recent publishing entity is The Verge. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Verge, The Verge is amazing. Right, the verge mm-hmm. is the verge is awesome, and you know they've only been around for less than a year and a half. Um, and I remember when when they announced uh, they were going to launch, and they took funding. Right, I mean they, they took funding from SB Nation, mm-hmm. and I remember that was such a weird. That felt like such a weird combination. Why would you know? Why would this tech group be? you know, sort of teaming up with this kind of sports, I think SB Nation sports focus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it just seemed, oh, that's so weird. But the reality is, is that SB Nation had this amazing CMS, right? (laughs) And, 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 and (laughs) every conversation I have winds up talking about the CMS. No, I'm kidding. But it's true is the CMS is the core, right? Amazing, right? It lets you, it lets you, the uh, one second though, is that like the iceberg under the top, under the, that is when you're a writer, when you're an editor, when you're a designer, the the CMS, you live and die by it. So this is not, to be underrated that if you build a good CMS, it gives you the agility, flexibility, and control to publish continuously or to publish amazing, complicated things like the Verge is now. Right, right. And and, and the reality is, I mean, I've talked with a number of Verge writers, you know, the writers do the layouts, you know, and and one of the things, you know, the Verge launched and, you know, the writing was, the writing was great, but really the thing that I think made it feel it felt like a breath of fresh air because it mm-hmm. felt it felt so aware of the way people were were consuming uh, uh, content, and so it's like you'd land on a Verge link, like suddenly, like theverge.com slash whatever. It, it created this like Pavlovian effect of, oh, that's going to be such a great reading experience. You know, it's just like <laughs> yeah. I'd see I'd see the Verge links. I go on I go on TechMeme and I ignore all other links and for every article I just click on the verge because I knew back then and even now that that was going to be a great experience and so part of that great experience was just a hyper awareness of great design on tablets great design on smartphones you know beautiful website um sort of really rich media and it just felt like these guys really get it they get it and if you watch you know what's happened in the last 6 months is you know they're starting to pick up all these great reporters and bring them on staff and and also the verge is doing these amazing uh, sort of mini documentaries. You know the, the the piece that was done about Google Glass a couple weeks ago. Yeah, beautiful. And they're doing, right, they're integrating video. Video has been a part right. of what they've done all along, and right. you're seeing. I think the Verge inspired like BuzzFeed. Uh, I mean, BuzzFeed is a classic, right? And, right, and Kristen right, right. and you talk about that, and that is like BuzzFeed was laughed at as a bottom right. feeder, right. and now who's laughing at BuzzFeed as it moves up that chain? It's going right. hired serious, more and more serious reporters. BuzzFeed does these great. You know, forget the thirty-seven things your goldfish needs to have in its tank it's like buzzfeed's features now they're like long magazine style features are fantastic and some of our writers are are buzzfeed and uh, writers as well which they are freelancers and then we see the new york times do snowfall and where does snowfall come from it comes from the adapt not not necessarily directly from the verge but the same thing is that it's this idea that you can have an interactive design that's fully in the web that's fully workable in every different platform which is what we'll talk about on your next appearance on the show about that (laughs) issue but it's but that seems so there's there's your direction you're pointing right is that 
there's this experience you can have that is fluent. It feels right in the medium, and the medium is every way you can read it, not just one way. Right, and 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 the verge is is so dismissible because it looks in 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 a lot of ways, it, you know, it feels like a traditional quote unquote traditional, you know, tech web publication, but. The place that it was born from and the way they've used tools and platforms is so mm-hmm. different. And even even now, it's it's hilarious. TechCrunch, to me, feels like something from like 1993. <laughs> right? That's a crazy thing and, to say. Well, I know it's true. And they were actually, they had I think when they launched, they had great, their design was much more au courant, like adaptable and mobile adaptable and so forth than anybody else was when they launched too, because they started from nothing, right? Right, right, right. And and they even relaunched and they rebranded with that sort of awesome kind of like ASCII ANSI art like super pixelated logo and everything. But but you know you go to it now and it just feels it feels like it's being published by tools from a different era. Oh, that's great. That's great. And and uh, and and the Verge doesn't. And I think you know people don't immediate don't consciously recognize that. But there is something sort of subconscious and you know Pavlovian about about going to a website that gets it. Even if you even if you can't put your finger on it as a reader, you just go there and it's like, oh, this this kind of feels like it should feel when I when I read something on the web or when I when I when I land on a link on my smartphone, and I think that that's really exciting. And so your brain says everything's in the right place, and right, it tells right, you that without right. this is the secret of graphic design, of course, is that that people are not designers dismiss as, oh, you spend a lot of time picking fonts and does it really matter and so forth. It's no, is what you do as a graphic designer is you are communicating to people in a language that they don't know they speak. Right, right, and that's what the I think you're right, and that's what a good, the good adaptable and these new designs they tell people something below a conscious level that signals to them things that they don't even know they know, but make them accept the experience as a fundamentally different thing than sites that and than apps and so forth that don't get it. Right. You've been listening to the New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Music